0: thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and listen to your word and to see what your spirit will have for us to understand. We thank you for this day and ask your guidance and leading and all that we look at in your son's precious name. Amen. Malachi chapter three. I'm going to read the first two verses and then stop for a little bit. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. And shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who shall abide in the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. So we're going to take a look at this because this actually has a twofold answer in here. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. And so, the very first one, and what most everybody talks about on this one, is being John the Baptist, being the forerunner of Jesus in the day that he came. But that doesn't fit this whole part of, you know, he's going to come to his temple, and who may abide in the day of his coming. doesn't really fit just that picture. Because when Jesus came, when John the Baptist preached, he came as the Lamb of God, the the meek, he, you know, he did chase the money changers out of the temple twice. He did, you know, uh, irritate the leaders, but he came mostly as the gentle uh, leader. And this shows a man who is very aggressive on this. So we know that the day that he's talking about is not just his first coming, but very specifically his second coming. And even more specifically, when he comes back at his return alright and touches down And we're gonna be looking at a bunch of those verses that talk about that day at the end time because it says who can stand in that and that re- references re- Revelation 6:17, where he says that he's coming and who can stand when he comes so we're gonna we're gonna fly through some of these I've got them marked so you all can just listen as I read these verses We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And this talks about how he comes, and there's the war, when Satan gathers the groups together and tries to war with him, and he ends the battle very quickly, and everybody comes against him. And Isaiah 13. Verses 6 through 11, How you for the day of the Lord is at hand, and it shall come as a destruction from the from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. They shall be afraid, pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them, and they shall be in pain as a woman in, that travails. They shall be amazed one at another, their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, To lay the land desolate, he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. And the sun shall be darkened in his going forth. And the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to come. And will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So again we see the vengeance that God is coming with at the end day and we've talked about this when we were talking in the Revelation class when when we see that period in heaven where Jesus changes from being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to the Lion of Judah he came the first time as the lamb meek and mild when he comes the second time he's coming as the mighty king the warrior and the victor and he's not coming with a nice time He's coming to say, oh, everybody who took the mark of the beast is going to be be cast out. Everybody, the Antichrist will be cast out. The image that he created will be cast down. Uh, Satan will be bound in chains and thrown into, into the pit for a thousand years. We see in a totally different Jesus at that point. And we've talked about this, how there's been a period in the Old Testament where God dealt very harshly with sin most of the time and we see His grace and His mercy but He dealt harshly with things. We have been in a period of really a gentle God full of grace for, since Jesus has came and, and died but there will be this time when He takes the church out and He will start dealing with Israel again and the tribes of Israel and the people and will be the harsh God And he's going to judge the world. And then he comes back and he really judges the world. uh, As we see in these verses that we're looking at. Isaiah 34 verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. The streams thereof shall be turned into pitch. And the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So he's talking about how strong his vengeance is and the battle that comes against him. So we see this vengeance in Jeremiah 46.10. For this is the day of the Lord of hosts, the day of vengeance. He shall avenge him of his adversaries and the sword shall devour and it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts shall has a sacrifice in the north country and the river of Euphrates. Go up into Gilead o, and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shall you use many medications, for you shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame, and your cry hath filled the land, and the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty, and both are fallen. So we're seeing again this vengeance. Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 22. You have called us in a solemn day, my terrors round about so that the day of the Lord's anger, none escapes nor remain. Those that I have swaddled and brought up have my enemies consumed. So again, it's God bringing, saying none are going to escape when he returns. Ezekiel 13, verse 5. Have you not gone up from the, in the gaps, neither made up the hedge of the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord, they have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, the Lord says, and the Lord hath not sent them, and they have made others to hope that in what they have confirmed. Ezekiel 30, verse 3. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his rivers, which have said, my river is my own, I have made it myself. And that's, that was 29, not 30. Let's try reading 30. <laughs> I go, that didn't make any sense. (laughs) The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Howl you, you woe worth the day. For the day is near, even the day that the Lord is near, a cloudy day, and it shall be a time for the heathen. And this one is Joel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Blow you the trumpet of Zion, and sound to the alarm, in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness, of gloominess of day, a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness, as the morning spreads upon the mountains, a great people and a strong there hath not been ever the like. Neither shall there be any after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and as behind them, a desolate wilderness. Yea, nothing shall escape. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, as horsemen. They shall, shall so shall they run like the noise of the chariot on the tops of mountains. Shall they leap like the noise of the fire that devours the stubble? As a strong people set in battle array, before their faces the people shall be much pained. All their faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like mighty men of war, they shall march every one in his ways and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every man his path and they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be and they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city and they shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses and shall enter into the windows like thieves, the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars withdraw their shining, and the Lord will utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, he is strong and executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can abide it, so it's talking about his victoriousness when he comes back, and then the next one is in Joel chapter 3, Verses 14 through 17. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of de- decision. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall also roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of Israel. And you'll notice this recurring theme the sun and the moon shall be darkened and that is also said in revelation that at the end days he will shorten the days he will darken darken the sun and the moon which means something's going to happen to our sun during this period of time to make it dark and that is a recurring theme all the way through when God talks about the day of the Lord that it's going to be darker the days are going to be be shortened Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. In all the vineyards shall be wailing, and I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord, and to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from the lion, and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. So shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. So God is telling them at this point in time that there's a bad time coming. And he says, you think you want this day? <laughs> you know, how many times have we heard somebody say, I just want what, God, what I deserve. You know, uh, or I can challenge God. You know, nothing that he does or says is going to be, <laughs> be harmful. And God says, well, you think you want this day? And he describes it to you. You run from a lion and find a bear. You, go to, you run into your house and you find a serpent. Uh, And we think we have bad days sometimes. (laughs) Obadiah 15. Find a (laughs) bull. You find a bull on your porch. (laughs) For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, and you have done it. it. It shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. And he says that day will be when people are judged. Zephaniah 1, verses 7 through 18. Hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord is prepared to sacrifice and has bid his guest. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, children, and all such as is clothed with strange apparel. In the same day will I also punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's house with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that there shall be a noise, a cry from the fish gate, which is one of the gates in Jerusalem, and a howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. How, you inhabitants of Mektesh, and all the merchants, people are cut down. All that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles, and punish the men that are settled on their lees, and say to them and say in their heart the lord will not do good neither will he do evil therefore their goods shall become a booty and their houses a destruction they shall also build houses but not inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and not drink the wine thereof the great day of the lord is near it is near and hastens greatly even the voice of the day of the lord the mighty men shall cry there bitterly that day of, is a day of wrath a day of trouble distress and a day of wasted Wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet of alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire and jealousy. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all that dwell in the land. So we see this whole judgment theme over and over again. And for us, because we will be coming back with him, it is a great day, a great day of great blessing. Zephaniah 14, 1 through 6. And this this is really good because we see the picture of Jesus' return and actually where and how. Behold, the day of the Lord comes in your... And your spoils shall be divided in the midst of you. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. And the houses rifled. And the women, ra- women ravaged. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. As when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand that day on the Mount of Olives. Which is before Jerusalem in the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west and it shall be a very great valley and half the mountain shall move move toward the north and half of it shall move to the south and he shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel yea they shall flee like as you fled before in the the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and the Lord my God shall come and in that and all the saints with you and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be in one day which, is, which shall be known to the Lord, not day or night, but it shall come to pass that at the evening time it shall be light. And, in it, and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them to the hinter sea, in the winter and the summer shall it be." So this talks about when Jesus comes. I mean, this is the greatest picture we have because remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended from Mount Olive. And he said, and the angel said, as you have seen him go, so shall you see him return. And Zechariah tells us that he steps on, as soon as his foot steps on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two and water Basically, water or stream will go out of Jerusalem toward the Mediterranean and then toward the Dead, toward the dead, uh, dead Sea. And everything will be fresh and the, there won't be day and night during this period of time is what it indicates. so the, And it leads into His rule and His rescue of Jerusalem. But you see here, right at the end of, end of the tribulation period, Jerusalem is taken and much happens in Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus said, pray that on that day it's not in Sabbath when you have to flee from the city and many of the Jews will flee from that city before before the end time comes and basically it's understood that they run to Petra the protected city and a couple just from the New Testament that we see and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5 To deliver such as one unto Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that the spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glory is not good. So he says, their day when Jesus returns is a great day for us because we're coming back with him in victory. If you're saved, you're coming back with him in victory. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through five. But at the time and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as travail upon the woman with child, and they shall not escape. But but you, my brethren, are not in darkness, for that day should not overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of the light and the children of the day, and are not of the night nor of the darkness." So he's saying, be ready that we will see this day coming, and we will be taken out before that ha- major ha- things happen. And the last one to read is 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt, and fervent heat in the earth also, and the works of the, therein are all burnt up. Again, that destructive, destructive picture. So here, in back in Malachi, we're seeing that he's talking about the God of vengeance at that day. And it's going to be prepared. People will know. We've got the book of Revelation. We've got the book of Daniel. We've got all these verses scattered throughout that talk about that last day when Israel is being oppressed and God stands up to defend his people. And we always want to remember, Israel is God's people. He chose them way back with Abraham. Right now, they're, on, they're kind of been on the side during the time of the Christian Christian's church. When God takes his church away, Israel becomes the primary target again. And, he'll, and then when Satan goes against him, he will not let them be totally destroyed. And this is where we get to see over and over, God always has a remnant of people that are worshiping him. We see this over and over. The battle of Mount Carmel, the prophet runs away and says, I'm the only one. And God says, oh, no, I've got I've got 3,000 people who haven't bent their knees. We see this all through the church. Through the dark ages when the church was being persecuted and God kept the church alive underground. He kept them alive to be able to bring the gospel back at the right time. We, we'll see this at the end times when we see 144,000 Jewish believers come forward and... and and minister for Christ through the, through the tribulation period and lead people to God. So there's this small group, you know, what's 144,000 against the trillions? You've got to be careful. If anybody's telling you that the Bible does not mean what it says when it's very clear, there's problems. They want to spiritualize everything away. that's very clear you've got problems. And this is done by many different, especially cults, but even some other groups that say they believe in the Bible and they spiritualize things and they change things or that's where your problem is. And see who shall stand it is appearing for he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller soap he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver and that that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So we look at this and the refiner's fire. Um, is when the refiner would sit at a pot, usually of some kind of cast iron or heavy heavy iron with a very hot fire under it, and it would be melting the silver and the gold, silver and or uh, silver or gold, not and, but one or the other, and it would turn into a liquid and they would almost get it to a point where it would boil. And in that process, the impurities from it would come to the surface and they would scrape off the impurities and set it aside and then take that later on and try to refine it even further when they get a bunch of it. And their goal in their refining was to be able to look down into that pot of silver or gold and see their reflection perfectly. And that was how they determined that they had finally taken all the impurities out because the impurities for some reason, and I don't understand why, but the impurities when they heated it rose above the liquefied gold and silver. And there's probably a lot of science in that. I've never understood it, but I just know that they sit there and they're patient and they're patient and they're patient and they keep, keep working at this until they have a pure uh, substance. And the fuller soap is, is a almost bleach um, in um, which verse was I looking at? Um, I thought I wrote it down. Oh, Mark 9.13, Jesus, uh, uh, let's just read it. 9.3, excuse me. And let's uh, go ahead and start at 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before him, and his raiment began to shine exceedingly white as snow, as, so as no fuller on earth can white them. So a fuller is a launderer, uh, and it, yeah, they would take an, anything white, if you really, really wanted it cleaned, you'd take it to the fuller, and they, could, they had soaps and bleaches and all that stuff that would actually, it would be for like us taking our clothes to the dry cleaners. They had the little chemicals and all this stuff to, to be able to take spots out. And a fuller was just, they were a cleaner uh, uh, clothes washer <laughs> and uh, they could get it white. And this is what he says, God is going to, in this day, he's going to put on the fire. He's going to, you know, and that's why we read all these different verses about that day when he returns and fire and cleansing and, and destruction and the fuller soap that makes everything white. And then verse 3 says, He shall sit as the refiner, as the purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. And this is something we have talked and very, very often. The idea of being the purifier. This goes back to Exodus chapter 40 when they purified all the different articles of the tabernacle. And they, and they had mixed up this water with the ashes from the, from the red heifer, and they would anoint it, and they would sprinkle the blood on, and they'd sprinkle the purification water on it. You know, so it was the blood of Christ and the water of the word, basically, is what we were looking, looking at, and they purified everything. So he's talking about purifying the Levites. But he also says, as silver and gold... The refiner purges with heat. And we've talked many a times that when God wants to test us, he wants to prove us, he gives us trials. He gives us heat in our life. And this is why, and I keep, we keep stressing this, and because we fail the test over and over again. Mostly we fail them because we're not looking at the tests that come our way with the right attitude. When hard times come our way, God is testing us to see, are we going to trust him? Are we going to believe? And so we need to, when hard things come in, like I've said before, first, we look at our life and say, have I sinned? Do I deserve what I'm getting? Now we've all sinned, but you know what I mean when I say sin, you know, am I purposely out there sinning? Am I really rebelling against God? And I haven't repented. If that's the case, then you deserve whatever, whatever the trial is, but it's still there to test us. Okay, even if we deserve it, it's still there as a test. Am I going to repent? Am I going to keep following God in spite of the test? And this is what we need to look at. God never promised us that everything would go smooth and easy. Matter of fact, He said, you know, He said that it would be hard. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. He says, when you've accepted me, you're going to have problems in your family. There's going to be members of your family that are going to say, you know, you're foolish for following this God. You know, why would you do this? You know, there's going to be the friction in your family because some that don't believe are just going to say, well, I don't understand you. You're you just especially if you've changed. If you used to be like them and you're not like them, then they come against you. If you if you stop doing the different things you used to do, you know, somebody who stops uh, drinking or, or doing drugs and the rest of the family is still doing it. And what do you hear? Well, you think you're better than us because you gave it up, you know. And we all hear that kind of stuff all the time. You just think you're better than us because you don't, you don't do all these things. And that's not what we should be doing. And if we're communicating that to them, we need to be careful not to. But the very fact that we give it up and that we walk in with God's presence, we're going to bring conviction and they're going to attack It's just the way it's going to be. And this is why all of this comes into God is going to purify. Why? Why is He purifying us? Because He wants us to know that we're following Him and that we're trusting Him. And the more tests we pass, the more confidence we have in God. And the more confidence we have in God, the greater things that we can start to do for Him. Because we have that confidence that He's going to deliver, that He's going to protect. And we get the word, and that's fine. I mean, we read the word, but, you know, God wants to say, do you truly believe what you're reading? And he's going to go in, and he's going to test. Isaac was the promised child to Abraham for the promise to be kept. And then God tells tells Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. Now, Abraham knew that Isaac was the child of promise. And in, in Hebrews, we're told that he went up knowing that God would be, would resurrect him. And I believe that would be the case. He was sure that if he had to kill his son, because the son was the one that was going to be the promise, that God would have to resurrect him because God doesn't lie. And Abraham knew that God didn't lie. And he didn't understand how this could work out. Go up the mountain, kill his son, and know that he had to come back with his son because the son was the one who was the answer of the promise. And Abraham was too old to have any more kids. So he knew that Isaac had to have kids. So we have all of this going on and and this confidence that he has in him. Do we have that kind of confidence that if God asks us to do something that seems very foolish and crazy that we would still go forward in it? Sometimes I've had, sometimes I haven't. But God grows us into that kind of confidence. You note that this event happened close to the end of Abraham's life, not at the beginning of his life. I don't know that Abraham would have had that much confidence at the beginning of his life. We all grow into our walk with God. And if you think about the things you're going through today and the and the trials that you go through and the way that you handle those trials, and you look back over your life and say, man, I just never could have handled this five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years however far back you can go. And you go, wow, I've come a long ways. God, my tests are harder, but God has given me the the endurance and the trust in him to go through this. And that's why I keep saying the, the good and the bad news is that every trial you've you successfully passed leads to a bigger one. <laughs> Which just means, yes, you passed the test and God's put more trust in you, but it leads to a bigger test. And if you had tried to take that test at the very beginning, you would have failed miserably. It would be like, like handling the kindergartner uh, an algebra test and saying, solve these questions when they can't even do one plus one is two. Okay, God does the same thing to us. He teaches us slowly, and grows us into a place where we can handle that. But when we're, when we've grown into a place where we handle it, it's still a test, because it has to be a test. You know, and I've said it over and over. When we're in high school, you know, if we're learned at a high school level, God's not giving us you know, so a one plus one is two test because that's not a test. Okay, we would laugh at that. You know, well, God, you know, that's that's really simple stuff. He gives us an algebra or trigonometry or whatever level we're at. He gives us a test. You know, I love math, so this is why I use math as my examples. Uh, but he gives us those tests that are hard for where we're at. They would have been impossible in our younger days, but where we're at, they're 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 just difficult because we need to still trust him. But we and for it to be a test, and this is what he's doing. He's purifying us. He's putting the fire in our life, saying. Are you growing? Are you, do you really believe what I'm teaching you? And we get to the place where every time we learn something new, God's going to test it. Do you truly believe this area of your life? Are you ready to go forward to the next step? And we see this even when you read the Gospels, you see this, this progression of steps. Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them. He's showing them. What's he do next? He sends them out two by two on their own. <laughs> to go out and, and evangelize, all right? But he's right there, available to answer any questions. Then we, he does a little more with them, and he takes a little more. He asks Peter to come out, step out on the water. You said you wanted to come, come. And keeps telling them that he's going to die. And then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, but they've been growing for, for the four years that he was dealing with them. And they were able to go forward from that. God does that with us. He grows us, he teaches us. He tests us as we go along and then says, time to go do. And there's always that time to go and and serve. Always. God is not looking at having a sideline full of people that do nothing. He's not looking at filling church seats. Church is for one reason and that's to equip everybody to go out and build up one another and edify one another. Then we go out and we witness and we and we disciple and we bring, bring people back to church to help get them equipped. But our job is to go out and do what it is that God has called us to do. Now that can be inside the church sometimes as a teacher or, as, or in serving the church. But it also means that we go out. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's us as well. We need to go out and make disciples. Disciples, in our Jerusalem, which happens to be here in Chloride, our own town, Chloride. <laughs> you know, we need to be making disciples here, in Judea, all, all around us, possibly the whole county. Well, that kind of we're to make, we to be we disciples. Are. We are disciples. We're learners. Disciple or disciple means learner. They're learning from somebody information. And so we are all disciples when we're, when we're saved and we need to be getting into God's word and we need to go out and share that gospel with others. It's important that we do that. Now that means we also, we need to live a life that makes people not point to us and say, you're just a hypocrite because that's a problem. But, but you know, we all have failings. We all have places where we are a hypocrite because we do not live a perfect life. Some of us have more than others. Some have more outstanding ones than others. But we all have this problem in our life that we don't live a perfect life. And we cannot live a perfect life because of the sin nature. Now Christ lives in us. And I, well, I shouldn't say cannot. Technically it's possible, but nobody's, <laughs> nobody that I have ever heard or read or, no, or met does. Because the sin nature still stays around and, and harasses us. And this is the problem that... But God says he's going to purge us so that an offering of righteousness can be made. He cleans up our life. He makes it so that we can come out. And it's a wonderful thing that when we just take a moment and share, you know, God has a plan for you. God loves you. Whatever, whatever way you want to start out a conversation with people is, is, is how you do it. And, you know, to tell people God loves you is a good way to start because most people don't truly believe that God loves them because they've been indoctrinated on this idea that you've got to do more than good than bad or you're not going to be accepted by God and they don't really realize that God loves them and that God has a plan and this is so important for us to understand God loves each one of us no matter what we've done or haven't done he loves us and he gives us great mercy by not sending us to hell which is what we deserve And then he gives us the grace to be able to go out and speak to people. And if we just start opening our mouths and sharing our testimony with people, God will fill our mouth and people will be shared. Does that mean everybody will start getting saved? No, not necessarily. But you can plant lots of seeds with this. Because this is what God is looking to do. He wants to purge us. Verse 4 says, Then shall the offering of Jacob in Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, and in the former years, which is talking about Malachi is talking to them about the time that they're rebuilding their temple from what, what we believe. But he's also saying there's going to come a time when God is going to be happy with the offerings in, of the people. Because ever since the Temple of Solomon, the mercy seat has not been around to be put into the temple. The Temple of Solomon did not have the mercy seat in it. And the mercy seat is the one that sits in the Holy of Holies. And that is where the blood is sprinkled on for the forgiveness of sin. And it has not been around since the Solomon Temple. And if they rebuild a the temple, won't be there. But this period that they're talking about is where Jesus sits in Jerusalem and rules. And he will be the one that sits on the mercy seat because he is the one that made the payment for the mercy for mercy. And it says, there will come a time when your, when your sins are going to be, your, your offerings are going to be acceptable. Verse 5 says, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling of, in his wages, and the widow, and the fatherless, and turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Lord. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So Jesus is saying he's going to come and he's going to, I I like the word justice better. It fits here better. He's coming in justice. In true justice where he's going to rule and protect. And he says he will be a swift witness. God will be the very witness against these eight sins that are listed here. And these are eight of the many that he could have listed. This is very interesting. He says, against the sorcerers. And sorcery's definition literally is those who worship idols, enchanters, and, and uh, magicians, sorcerers, and witches. And uh, so sorcery, magic, and worshiping of idols. And this is something we have, we've talked a little bit about this. There are many people worshiping idols, even in our day, even though they don't have these golden statues, but they have things that are above God, and they're worshiping idols. And in the Greek language, it brings in the idea when it uses sorcerer of, it's the word pharmakia, which also gets into drugs, and sorcerers and witches have always used drugs and and all of that stuff in there, enchantments and hallucinatory uh, herbs and spices and stuff to bring in hallucinations and hypnotic type things to make them suggestive, you know, open to suggestions. So all of this goes into this and we look at our own world and how much is the drug and culture out there. And we've got our own government and doctors trying to basically prescribe us to death on things. Uh, you know, and, just, and there is so much drug use out there, either legal or illegal, both, that are out, that's out there right now. And it's amazing to me because I fight my doctors when I do go to the doctor all the time. Why am I taking this pill? What is its purpose? What are the side effects? And is it, you know, are the side effects worse than the, what you're trying to treat me for? They don't like being questioned. (laughs) But here God is saying all of this false religion stuff is out there. And he says, I hate that. I'm going to judge it. Then the next thing he goes, adulterers. Those who are going outside their marriage for sex. And this will include in this particular idea those that are committing fornication and then all other sexual sins. And we're not going to name the law here. We've done this in the past. You know, it's a, all other sexual sins. Anything, any sex outside of marriage is a sin in God's eyes. And this is what he says. I'm coming quickly to, to judge this. Our world, again, is very, very lascivious. It has sex in just about every category. And we see it over and over. And how many people live together in this day and age? There was a time when we might have been too pure. And that was part of the problem. The church got so pure that they couldn't even consider that topic, which left it open to the world. And God created sex, but he created it to be performed within the marriage And as long as we keep it inside the marriage, it's the way God designed it. This has been part of the problem that we're facing in in our current generation is that the church stopped talking about certain topics. They didn't talk about illicit sex and proper sex. They didn't talk about governmental issues. They didn't talk about the abortion issue because it was somehow not part of what God says. And God talks very clearly about Children being known in their mother's womb, which means that they shouldn't be murdered at the whim of somebody. He talks about proper place for sex. And and if we start really saying, this is what God says. He talks about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Every aspect of our life is talked about in scripture. So there shouldn't be any of this, this is out of bounds to talk about stuff. But the church for many, many generations had these things that were off limits to talk about. Because we didn't talk about them, the world filled that vacuum. There is no such thing as a vacuum in this world. If the church isn't filling it with God's rules, the world will fill it with its rules. Always. If there's a power that, you know, out there that is knocked down, it won't stay unfilled. Somebody's going to fill that power spot. And this is why we need to be able to say, this is what God says about it. And that's becoming very hard in our generation because it's not politically correct to say that fornication's wrong, that homosexuality's wrong, that adultery's wrong, that you know, not telling the truth is, is wrong. You know, it's becoming very unpopular to call these things sins. Why? Because the church was silent for too long on these issues. This is something that I'm glad that apologetics is coming back into a full force movement because I grew up in a time when somebody asked, you know, well, how do you, you, know, how do you know there's a God? And everybody in the church would gasp that somebody would not believe that there's a God and would question the, the validity of God. So they learned very quickly, don't ask questions in the church. Okay, so where does that lead them to? If I'm not going to be able to prove that God exists in church, and I can't prove that the Bible is what we need to believe in, in church. I can't prove to you that creationism is true in church. And you, I make it that you can't ask those questions. You're going to go out in the world and ask those questions. And you ask the world, how do I know that there's a God? And their answer is, there isn't one. How do I know? How do I know that the Bible's real? That's just a false book full of, full of myths and fairy tales. How do, I, you know, how do I know that God created? Well, God didn't create the earth. We, we, we know that God did evolution. Okay, the world's got all kinds of answers for them. They're bad, stupid, idiotic answers. But we trained a generation of, you know, or generations of kids to never question any of the dogmas that we believed. And when they did come with questions and they were rejected, they went out to the world to find their answers and the world filled their head with a bunch of garbage. And so this is why it's very important that we're ready to give an answer really understand. I understand the people that are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, for those that are living that long, they grew up in a Christian church that just believed what they were told because that's what they were told and they had to believe it or or not question it in, in the church. But we live in a generation where everybody's taught to question everything and we've got answers. We need to be ready to give them. And this is why it's important even for those who just want to believe because they, that's how you believe. If they want to reach their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren, they need to be ready to answer these questions that they have out there. And the Bible has the answers. It has good answers, and we need to give them those answers. And be ready to answer all those questions because if we don't answer them in the church, they will get the answers. And they will be the wrong answers. Because they're going to get them from the world. All right, and then, and again, then it says, against false swears, those who lie. You know, it's kind of amazing to me how easy people lie in our day and age. You know, I'm old enough to remember when you were supposed to tell the truth, and if you didn't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, people got after you. And nowadays, we have to question everybody who speaks to us. You know, Are they really telling me the truth? Are they really being honest? And we have to kind of look into their answers. You can't trust anybody's word. If They say they're going to do something for you. You've got to get it down on a piece of paper with the, that the lawyer, is, lawyer has checked every word over so that it's an ironclad contract or they're going to wiggle out of the contract and not do what they said they do. And this is really sad in our day and age. Uh, I was raised that when you borrowed something or used something, you gave it back to them, in as good a condition or better, than you got it. And I was always one, if I borrowed somebody's car, and I never really borrowed cars very often, it had more gas in it when it got back, it was clean, and usually it had a full tank if I could afford it, uh, but I treated it well. If I borrowed somebody's pro, you know, pro, property, it, it got cleaned and presented back to them in, in good condition. Jesus says in the end, in the end times that the people would be liars. And he says he's going to judge those that oppress the hiring of his wages. Oh, this is something that happens so often, and it's always happened. You know, not giving people their wages or not wanting to... We've got some companies that try to nickel and dime your wages to death. You know, charge you for this, charge you for that. You broke this, you lost this, so we're going to claim it out of your way, dock it out, Dock it out of your wages, and that's God saying is not right. He also says those who oppress the widows. God is very strong on this idea of the widows are not to be oppressed. And because they are not prepared in many cases to do things, because if they were married, they usually had their husband supporting them and usually took care of most of the bills and and was their protector. And especially in the day that they're talking about, you needed the protection of somebody who was actually strong enough to fight off anybody because you didn't have a police force. That man of the house literally was the protector of the house as well. And it says the fatherless, the orphans. So, And this is, these are two groups that still to this day get abused easily. And God says, I'm going to judge. Those that turn aside the stranger from his right, the aliens, the, the, the people that don't really belong there, they do have some basic rights and everything. And in these days, they came in, they, didn't, they couldn't vote or do a lot of things, but they were also to be treated, at least in Israel, with some respect. Why? Because they were created in God's image. They deserved at least the basic rights of, of, of kindness. Here it says, and they don't fear me. God says, and they're not fearing me, which covers all the other laws that he's put out there. And God says, these eight things are what he's coming to judge quickly. And we see every one of these violated in multiple ways and, and very strongly in our, in our day. And he goes, for I am the Lord, I change not. I love this part, God says he does not change. The fancy term that, we, that you learn in theology is he is immutable, he does not change. And he cannot be changed because he is God. He will not change, and, there, and then he goes. Therefore, and we, and I keep bringing this up. It's something that's taught in, in seminaries all the time. Any time you see therefore, you ask, "What is it therefore?" <laughs> Here he's saying he doesn't change. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. God says, "I made a promise to I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they will be blessed. That their st- descendants would be the as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand." And therefore, God does not destroy Jacob. And he has not allowed Israel to be destroyed. And this is the amazing thing. You look at all that they've gone through over the years. Captivity in Egypt. Many times that they've been taken away captive and put under submission. Captivity of Babylon and Assyria. And they still maintained their nationality as Jews. They went out in 70 AD and were dispersed around the world, and they still remained Jews. And this is an amazing thing because they were never totally assimilated by any country that they moved into. Now, they had different changes because you can't totally not be changed by where you go, but they still maintained their Jewish practices. They still maintained taking Saturday off. During the Middle Ages and and even during the Roman Empire and all through many years, they were considered lazy people because in days when people were working seven days a week, they were taking a day off every week and they were accused of taking vacations every week. You're taking a vacation every week. You guys are just lazy. They've maintained their Jewish perspective of the Sabbath being taken off. Nowadays we take five. You know, we only work five days a week. In some places it's only four days a week. So they maintained this. They kept their. They kept practicing the Passover. They kept practicing tabernacles. They kept practicing their various major holidays, and it ebbed and flowed over those years. During the dark ages, they maintained the hand washing and and. and and cleaning of things when rats and stuff would crawl over them, which God said, if an animal crawls across your, your dishes, you're to wash them in running water. And then because they did all the stuff that God told them to do, they did not get subject to the plague because they were keeping their house clean and keeping their stuff clean. And they washed their hands and all this stuff. And then, of course, they got accused of being witches causing the plague because they didn't get it. <laughs> So they had their problem on the flip side, but God says, I'm going to protect you. Hitler tried to destroy the Jews, and God wouldn't let it happen. Many of the other communist countries have tried to destroy the Jews, and God wouldn't let it. He's returned them back to their land for the third time. (laughs) So, And we're looking at the end days coming where the Jews are starting to gather in, and it's kind of amazing because... God is putting it on the heart of the Jews to return home. He's gathering the Jews back to their homeland. And we're seeing more and more of them wanting to go back, trying to find ways to go back. And Israel's ready to make room for all the Jews that want to come home. And because God is bringing them back to the where they can be protected. Because it's what's going to happen in the end days is going to be Israel attacked by the world. And... We see this coming, but God says, "I don't change. I will not. I have not destroyed the Jacob's sons, and He could go even further. And I will not let anybody else destroy all of His seed." And we're going to end at this verse here. And uh, and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God that doesn't change, that you protect your people, that there is a day coming when you will come and stand in victory and and you will start the thousand-year reign of the millennial kingdom. And then you will let Satan loose one last time and defeat him and all that turn against you. And then you will destroy everything and start all over with a brand new heaven and earth that we will be able to live in for all of eternity with you. And we just thank you for all of that and ask you to go with us as we go about our day. In your son's name, amen.